Good morning. It's my joy to get to introduce a new family to our church. They've been visiting with us for, for quite a while. Uh, Brett and Kaylin Dillard. I know they're here, but I'm not sure where they're seated. Where are we? There we are. Y'all mind standing where you are and show us Silas? Because that's really what we want to see. Uh, we've got their picture on the screen as well. Let me tell you a little bit about this wonderful family. Um, Kaylin and Brett, um, we're, they were already featured in our monthly messenger. If you're one of our members, you get that each month, and they did the little get to know you and a lot of details there. I'll share just some of the highlights. Um, he's from Lebanon. She's from Mount Juliet. They met while in college at Tennessee Tech. He was playing football. She was working in the um, uh, orientation for new students. They got married uh, just before Brett entered dental school. Uh, Kaylin is an interior designer, and Brett is uh, now a new dentist uh, with Dentistry at Love here in, in Columbia. That's what brought him our way. And Silas is a month old tomorrow. Uh, so get to know this uh, new family and help them to feel at home. Um, also want to share today is uh, a lot of things going on. For one, uh, we are wrapping up our holiday hope. Uh, we as a church have a, uh, adopted, if that's the right word, sponsored 60 children uh, who otherwise would not have Christmas. And you are so generous to do that. I was walking through the office this week in our workroom. There's a big old shiny bicycle uh, just right there. I thought that is such a sweet sight. Uh, so thank you for your generosity. Those presents are due today. We're going to then in turn deliver those tomorrow. Um, it's not too late if you've not yet donated for the food that also goes to those families. Um, uh, you're welcome to do that, but you need to do that today. Uh, also starting today, and I want to call your attention, there's a, an insert in the bulletin about our homeless outreach. Uh, we've done this for a number of years. Um, one of the neat things about this is that we do it hand-in-hand uh, -hand with the Carmack Church, one of the many things we do with them. It's also neat because we reach out to the homeless uh, in a very tangible way. Uh, in some ways, it's a wonderful timing because it's Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and the day after. But it's also challenging for others because you're out of town or with family. Um, so a lot of opportunities there. You can start registering online the details of how to do that. You can do one day, one meal, uh, several. Um, if you're out of town or can't be a part of it physically but want to donate, that's helpful. Last year, we had... Um, 30 rooms, about 30 families. Some of those were, were single occupants. Um, this year, we've reserved 40 rooms, um, and so hoping to fill all of those. So the need is great, and it's a really unique opportunity to help people who otherwise uh, would really, really struggle. So look at all the details there, and you can sign up or see me if you've got a, a question about that. We are in the book of Joshua. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to chapter 6. There is more to the book of Joshua than just the story of Jericho. And there's more to the story of Jericho than just the walls falling down. We typically stop here when we're teaching about this to little children, and that's understandable. But as a church, and especially as teenagers and adults, I want us to go deeper in this story and not stop here we need to ask the hard questions and we need to search the scriptures for the right answers 
So we'll have a few more lessons from Joshua because I don't want to just gloss over what we need to know and then we'll talk about the birth of Jesus on on Christmas Day. So that's how the month of December is going to pan out. Uh, Let's begin by reading Joshua chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 15. It's going to be on the screen, but you may want to read out of your own Bibles. Joshua 6, 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction." Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Verse 20, so the people shouted, the trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had, spy, who had, spy, had been spies went in, brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. In our last message, we talked about the story of Jericho is a story of breakthrough faith. So I've called this lesson Breakthrough Faith Part 2, but really every lesson in Scripture is about faith. The writer of Hebrews included a key detail, Hebrews 11.30, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Last week we observed three key components or observations about breakthrough faith. They're on your outline, a quick, quick review, they're on the screen. Breakthrough faith fights from victory, not for victory. They know the battle is won. The Lord told them, I have given you the city. Breakthrough faith sees obedience as a victory parade, more than a funeral procession. So it shows on your face, your demeanor, you know God is victorious. He's going to see you through. Breakthrough faith makes the difference in us getting value out of God's word. When you combine faith with the word of God, that's the winning combination. That's what we learned in this story. And it's the truth in all of scripture. Well, this morning I want us to see three more observations as we continue to learn and really go deeper about what this kind of faith means. So here's our first one to, to, uh, this morning. 
Breakthrough faith often advances through foolishness, at least from the world's point of view. When I think of the story of Jericho, I'm reminded of a quip by Mark Twain. He said this, It ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Can you relate to that? But may we admit that the Bible is full of some incredible stories. Incredible stories. So unexpected. So, can we say foolish? Even ridiculous? You ever read through your Bible and just thought to yourself, can this be true? See, we are products of our environment. We grew up in a, a, a culture, a mindset. We have 21st century rational minds. So we like to think reasonably. And we like to outline and we like to understand the logic behind and some kind of human explanation. So we're inclined even to read the Bible in that way. We read the Bible with Western eyes. We can't help it. It's just a part of us. But these walls are 30 feet high, archaeologists tell us. Six feet wide. They're built as a defense to keep the enemy out. They don't just fall over because people march and blow a trumpet and shout. The walls would fall down when there's a force pushing against them. Our rational brains, our minds, we know that to be a fact. Otherwise, a story like this just comes across downright foolish. But in the Bible, again and again, God works this way. Israel didn't lay a hand on the wall. They didn't have the conventional warfare to, to be able to have a ramp to, to, to go over the wall or any kind of battering ram. They had nothing. The walls came down after simply marching around the city. Nothing they did physically brought the walls down. The writer of Hebrews said it well. By faith, the walls fell. That's what's going on here. Is it out of line to say this marching and blowing and shouting is foolish, silly. You ever read through this and think, what am I reading? You know, what am I being asked to swallow here? How do I make sense of this? God has always, think about this, God has always delighted in, in bringing victory to his people in the most unconventional ways. Sometimes the, the least likely person to be the hero of the story. He does it again and again. I'll give you a couple of examples, and I share this. We're going to talk about this more in our small groups. I wish every one of us were in a small group, especially for this study, because you need to go a little bit deeper here. But think about one came to my, my mind, Gideon. You remember the story of Gideon? How God basically says, you need to whittle your army down to 300. 300. Tiny, tiny amount. And then with that, they, give a lamp, they have a lamp, a pitcher, and a trumpet. And they're totally victorious. That's ridiculous, isn't it? What about Jonah? Remember the story of Jonah? Sometimes called the most reluctant prophet in, prophet in history. <clears throat> I'm not even going to talk about the great fish. There's a foolish, ridiculous story. What about chapter 3 when it says Jonah 
spoke eight words and 120,000 people repent. Amazing. Ridiculous. 120, y'all, that's like three times the size of Columbia. Isaiah chapter 20 talks about he spent three years, Isaiah spent three years wandering in Israel naked. I was looking into that. Is it really true? Some scholars suggest well, probably what that means he was wearing only his loincloth. We would say his underwear. But even that's kind of foolish, isn't it? Think about walking around three years just wearing your underwear. But I, look, I looked it up. The Hebrew word naked there is the same word that describes Adam and Eve in the garden before God made them clothes. How does that make sense? Why is that in our Bibles? Naaman had to be cured from leprosy. Remember that? Dipping seven times in the River Jordan. He thought it was ridiculous. He thought that was silly. What about the incarnation? You ever thought about how foolish that whole story that God would choose a teenage peasant girl who's not even married yet so that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, could be born? How is that a good start? How does that make sense? God does this all the way to the cross again and again. Look at the screen, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Don't you know that all of Jesus' enemies thought, we're winning, we're doing away with Jesus. Even Satan himself thinking, we got him, we defeated him. And the whole time, it was not true. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. What if one of the ways God advances his kingdom is by doing things that seem foolish? At least from the world's perspective. Isn't that the point? So that no one can boast before him? Isn't that the message in every single story we read in the Bible? And again and again, he chooses the unlikely woman, the unlikely man. And it's almost an absurd story because there's no other explanation. There's no other way he could be victorious except God in heaven made it happen. We see it again and again. That's why breakthrough faith advances through foolishness. And it may be why you struggle with spiritual things. Because you're relying more on your rational brain, your logical sense, trying to make sense of it, instead of seeing things through the eyes of faith. Churches do this all the time. When things are not going as they think they should be going, it's so easy to, to rationalize or complain and say, if we just had a better building, or if we just had a better preacher, or if we just had better elders, or if we just meet the budget, or if we started this new program... But are we talking about a business or the kingdom of God? Because you can't approach them in the same way at all. You cannot advance the kingdom of God through Western logic and our organized thinking and its clean bullet points. God doesn't work that way. Listen to what Bruce Wad wrote. His vacuum cleaner broke. The hose came off. 
And even though he could see the threads, he could not get it to reattach. He was so exasperated, he took it to a shop. He wrote this, Upon visiting the vacuum specialist for the replacement, this extremely kind gentleman showed me the correct way to reconnect the hose by turning it anti-clockwise, counterclockwise. What an idiot I felt. Having been so incensed because of the stupid hose that wouldn't stay connected in less than five seconds, he explained the simple truth of screwing the connection the opposite way. And then he wrote this, God often waits till you're finished struggling before he offers his answer. And often the answer is the total opposite way that you've been trying. There is a sense where God's instructions go against the norm, against the culture. Think about it. When Jesus came and was trying to talk about what it means to be in the kingdom of God, he turned everything upside down. The way to live is to die. To be first is to go last. The way to rule is to serve. The way to respond to your enemies is to love. The way for financial peace is to let go of clinging so tight to material things. And unless you realize God's threads go against the culture, you're going to be so frustrated because you're trying to do it your own way. Your own way of thinking. God sees to it that his kingdom advances through foolishness, at least from the world's perspective. Well, here's a lesson number two. Breakthrough faith takes advantage of God's grace period. Now, if anybody near you is nodding off already because they didn't take their coat off and it's a little warm, wake them up because we need to get this. This is one of those things that even some good Bible-loving Christians have never fully comprehended. And I don't know that I can say I fully get it, but we need to understand what's going on here. Look in Joshua chapter 6, verse 21. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction. Both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. What does that mean to devote to destruction? Why would God command them to do this? And how in the world can you consider killing every living thing, even children, as devoting the city to the... Have you ever struggled with this? When you read through this, you think, let's just kind of skip on over and read another wonderful story, how God came to the rescue. But let's not skip too quickly. Let's dive into this. Here's another underlying question to the whole story of Joshua and them taking the land. Maybe you've asked it. Maybe you were afraid to ask. You ever thought, why would God give them this promised land that was occupied by other people? These Canaanites, they were their cities, they were their homes, it was their gardens, it was their wells. Why didn't God just have them at least drive them out? Why did God say, kill them all? Was that necessary? How do we make sense of this? I want us to see the answers to these questions from Scripture. Now, we can't cover it all in one sermon. We're going to study more in our, our small groups tonight. You may want to dig even more on your own. But let me just share a little bit to kind of uh, point to Scripture some answers to these questions. First of all, we need to know this. 
This was God's idea and not Israel's. This was not God said, here's how you do it, and Israel went too far and slaughtered everybody. This was God's instructions from the beginning. In fact, he gave them very specific instructions and even the reasoning. So let's look at a few of those. So on the screen, you may open your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Look what God says here. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, and then he lists them, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations. And notice how God describes them. More numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. There's that word again, that phrase. You shall, not make, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me and serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them, and you shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their asher, and burn their carved images with fire. You get what he's saying there? You get rid of all their idol worship paraphernalia, all of it. Why? Verse 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all the peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You want to know who God is? Look at these next verses. Verse 9, No. Therefore, know therefore, the Lord your God is God, a faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his covenants to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and all the rules that I command you today. And then verse 16, and you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve other gods, for that would be a snare to you. Bold words, hard words, but God's real open about this. Let me share another passage that kind of helps us to have a little peek into how wicked these people had become. Look in Deuteronomy 18, beginning in verse 10. There shall not be among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Do you get that? That's how far these people had fallen. It was nothing for them to do a live sacrifice of their children to their foreign gods. And he goes on, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. So what is the reason God tells them to just wipe them out? Look what follows. And because of these abominations, the Lord is driving them out before you. That's why. Now scholars will explain 
as Scripture notes here, Israel was weak. Israel was small. They were not a trained army. They had everything going against them to be victorious in some kind of typical military battle. There's no way they could win. So scholars explain because of that, these nations were to be completely wiped out. Because if not, then the others would come in and take over. Israel would not win. And if they won temporarily, they would lose eventually. And what about the children? It was known among the people of that day, the cultures of that day, the way they did war. If the children survived, they would grow up and take revenge for the death of their parents. You could mark it down. That's the why. That's the thinking behind Now, I know as we share this, this is a Sunday morning sermon. Children are listening. But I also want to make sure you say, we just always talk about the fluffy stuff at church. And we don't get in the nitty-gritty. Folks, we've got to know this because this is who God is. And I want you to see this, there, there's good in this. As harsh as this is to hear, there's some good that we need to know and understand. So here's the question. How do we reconcile what God has told these people to do with what the Bible tells us about God being a good God and a loving God and a forgiving God and a patient God? How do these two stories come? Are we talking about the same God here? You ever, I don't even know if they're still on. Is, is Dateline on anymore or 2020? I don't even know. But do you remember when those crime documentaries would, 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 were on and, and you'd watch it for an hour and for the first 30 minutes they would show one side of the crime story? And at the end of that 30 minutes, you're just so convinced that with all the evidence presented, guilty, guilty. I know they're guilty. Just say it now, they're guilty. And you go to a commercial break, and then it comes back on for the second half, and they start showing all the rest of the evidence. And then by the end, you're like, I don't even know. Do you remember that? Have you ever been that way? You think you know? Folks, a lot of people see God, and all they know is the first half or, or an incomplete portion or, or picture. They don't see the whole story. So before we criticize, before we read this story and just gasp at the horror, we need to grasp the big picture. What all is going on here? And the reality is how extremely, extremely patient God had been with these Canaanites. God was not against the Canaanites per se. It wasn't that you're not Israel, you're therefore condemned. That's not true. We know how. How do you explain Rahab? Rahab was not of the people of Israel. She was a Canaanite. She was a prostitute. She came to faith. God saved her. So it wasn't that this, this ethnicity or this nationality or, or you're not my people and so therefore you're That's not what's going on here. Rahab and her entire family were saved. God was not against the people living in Canaan. We need to know that. What's God against? He's against their horrible ways. Their wicked choices. They had totally They would not obey God even though he had been so patient with them. I don't know if you know this, but Abraham knew that his descendants would end up in slavery. Do you remember that verse in Genesis 15? In fact, look on the screen. It tells you not only, God is telling Abraham, here's the timeline of your people and what's going to happen to them. 
Genesis 15, 16. See, Abraham never really fully occupied the land. It was to happen later. Why? Well, here's the reasoning. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, Genesis 15, 16, and note the reason for the delay. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Are you getting that? The NIV says the sin has not reached its full measure. I like the way the New Living Translation says it. The sins do do not yet warrant their destruction. Do Do you hear what he's saying to Abraham? Your people are going to go into slavery for 400 years. Why? Because it's not quite time for them to have the land of Canaan because I'm not giving up on the Amorites yet. Their sin has not reached full measure. It doesn't yet warrant me wiping them out. Is that not what is being said here? What if one of the reasons God sent Israel or allowed Israel, however you want to word that, for 400 years into slavery or even delayed the timing there was to give them more time to repent? Do you not read that here? Or maybe you're thinking, well, what if the Canaanites didn't know about God? What if nobody ever told them about who the real God is and they just didn't know any better? I mean, they're in this pagan land and everybody's doing it. What if they were truly in the dark and nobody knew? Well, what do we know from Scripture about that? Do you remember Melchizedek? The high priests? The high priest Melchizedek? Where was he from? Canaan. Where did Abram Abraham live. Canaan. Even more than that, fast forward to Joshua's day. Let's just say they didn't know. They were totally in the dark. Fast forward to Joshua, where we've been studying. What are we to make of Rahab's statement in chapter 2? The whole city had heard about the Red Sea crossing 40 years earlier. I thought about that. Okay, that would be for us go back to 1982. They remember that far back. They knew the story. Rahab just instantly, we know what God did 40 years ago. The whole city had heard about the two kings. And then you go to chapter 5, where we've been just recently. It says all the kings of the Amorites knew about the crossing of the Jordan. They knew. They knew. The people knew. By the time Israel gets to Jericho, these people have had not just years centuries to come to God. So could it be that allowing the Canaanites to hear about God, taking care of His people, delivering them out of bondage, crossing the Red Sea, crossing the River Jordan, defeating those two kings on the other side, was all of that just one more effort, one more notion, one more, look who I am, people. Look how I'm taking care of my God. What if... What if one of the reasons he had to march around seven days, once a day for six, and then seven days on the seventh, was that giving them one more chance? What about Rahab's family? We know mother, father, brothers, all in her house. What if there was some in the family saying, I'm just not sure if I can believe this or not. Was those seven days giving family a little more time to get off the fence and get into the house? So before we're too quick to criticize on God's wrath and think, oh, that is so extreme. That is not the God I know, the God I love. Hang on a minute. 
We need to step back and realize the big picture and see extremely how patient God had been. Yes, God was delivering his promise to give the people of Israel the land. But God was also using Israel to be his instrument to execute judgment on the people who said no. Both of those are happening at the same time. And God told his people that. Why? Because we're people. You do something, you're victorious, you pat yourself on the back. Look how good I am. Look what I did. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. He's warning the people about Here's the big picture. Look at this. Talking to Israel. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into the possessed the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that he swore to their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I hope you know this. God is a perfect God. And God's justice is is perfect. His justice is perfect. God will always do the right thing. You have to know that. We see that in Scripture again and again. The Bible says God does not show favoritism. He doesn't just wipe out all of Canaan. Rahab came to faith. She saw, as we would quote Scripture, the handwriting on the wall. We knew you were coming. She believed. She was saved. And even the Jews, you know their story. Fast forward not very long. When the Jews dive into idolatry, God uses a pagan nation to drive them out. It's who God is. He's not going to allow iniquity. What I'm saying is don't be too quick to judge the wrath of God. In that city was... Rahab who came to faith and what reminded what was the difference is that she responded so get this the God who judged Jericho so thoroughly is the same God who saved Rahab and her family so completely at the same time in Jericho there's breakthrough faith going on outside the walls the children of Israel marching believing God's going to give them a victory it's a victory parade And there's also breakthrough faith going on inside the walls. All of those who were inside Rahab's house. Hebrews 11.31, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. Folks, here's our application. I hope you're already there, but I, I need to say it. We too are under a grace period. Do you know that? Just with the Amorites, they continued to ignore, we too are under a grace period. Jesus Christ came to earth, born a helpless child. Our whole world is going to be focusing on that for the next several weeks. Rejected by men, yet he did not retaliate. He died a substitutionary death. He took our sin debt. He conquered the grave when he marched out that Sunday morning. He ascended and he's in heaven preparing a place for us. But he's coming back. And not as a helpless babe, but as King of kings and Lord of lords, and as the judge of all. That's what Scripture says. And we need to be ready. 
We need to be ready. We're under a grace period. That's who God is. That's the way God responds to all of his people. That has not changed. That's not an Old Testament, New Testament. That's who God is. But look what is written to us today under this new law. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 15. First of all, you must understand in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. They deliberately forgot that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed, and the earth was formed out of water by the water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Get what he's talking about there? Talking about the great flood. Keep reading. Verse 7. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, it's like a thousand years. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Grace period. That's what we're talking about here. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come with, like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Sounds a little bit like Jericho, doesn't it? Burn the whole city. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destructions of heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, what promise? What promise? He's coming back. Just as he came, he's coming back. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Verse 15, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. The longer God waits, the longer God waits, it's for more people to turn, for more people to come to God. It's God's grace period. No one likes to talk about death and dying and all of this. We'd rather talk about more pleasant things. But if you have breakthrough faith, you have the faith that we read about in the book of Joshua, we read about in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, the walls fell. By faith, Rahab hit the, the spies. Then you're walking daily in the Holy Spirit. That's why you believe. That's why you respond that way. You look forward to His return. You welcome His return. You're praying for His return. Because you're hanging on to that promise. And more and more you feel like strangers. You ever feel that way? Even in our own country? You think, what has happened to our country? What has happened? I don't belong here anymore. Lord... Come quickly. Are you ready? Is there anybody else you want to say, hey, you need to come into my house? Because he's coming. It's coming. We need to be bold in talking about what we believe. Do we really believe? Let me close with this. Breakthrough faith produces a radical devotion to holiness. Because of this promise, what kind of people ought you to be? That's what Peter asked. 
You want to live holy and godly lives. Breakthrough faith means you are no longer as a child or childlike understanding thinking that, you know, where's the thou shalt not and then I won't do it. You're thinking, I want to get as far away from anything that's going to keep me from being one with God. So you're not legalistic at all. You're trying to stay as far away from not just sin, but an environment or an entertainment or, or anything that's going to pull you away. You want to live the best life possible. You want to live what Jesus promised, the abundant life. And what does that look like? Well, you just remove all those things. They're going to pull you down. Rahab was recognized by that scarlet cord in the window. And we love that about the story, don't we? That scarlet cord in the window. And when the Lord comes back, it was in the line of the song. He's our righteousness. And God's justice will look at Jesus and pardon you. That's the story. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Jesus, our Joshua, has promised that he will come again. And we long for that day. You wonder what it was like for Rahab for those seven days marching? Did she know the battle plan? We don't know that. In the house, everything is that red cord hanging. Did I put in the right window? Was it big enough? Are they going to see it? Is this going to work? Incredible faith. What's our scarlet cord? We don't have a cord to hang out our window. But the Bible talks about the blood of Jesus being washed. It's your baptism. It's that new birth. It's when you take on His name. It's when you get His Holy Spirit. It's when you begin to walk in His ways. And every day you get up and you do it again. Folks, God is a good God. He's a great God. But He's also a just God. What kind of people ought you to be? You should live holy lives. That's what He asks of us. He wants to know if you're in His kingdom. Have you been washed in the blood? Are you ready to be baptized? Or maybe you've been just kind of wandering out, doing your own thing, not really walking in the Spirit. Maybe it's time to come back home. We can pray for you and encourage you. If you're ready to be baptized, we're going to sing a song to encourage you. Upon.